Welcome to tape number 13 of Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources as well as our complete mail order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discount is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. Now to the reading of Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele, which we pray you find to be a great blessing and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing on with reading of the appendix that came with Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele. Here it is proper to notice an objection of Bishop Newton. He asks, With what propriety can it be said that some of the dead who were beheaded lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years, but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished, unless the dying and the living again to be in the same unless the dying and living again be the same in both places. Very true, the dying and living are doubtless the same in both places. The bishop's mistake consists in taking these expressions in a literal sense, a proper death and a resurrection. He evidently assumed that the rest of the dead here mentioned are to be literally raised at the last day. This is undoubtedly true, for there shall be a resurrection of the unjust, Acts 24, verse 15, but it is not true but it is not the truth contained in the words in question from the assumption of the literal raising of the rest of the dead he infers the literal raising of those who were beheaded the converse of this is obviously the correct way of reasoning we have found that the witnesses are spoken of chapter 11 verse 14 as figuratively raised by the bishop's own acknowledgement Therefore, it is most natural and logical to infer that the rest of the dead were to be raised in the same manner, namely, figuratively. At the beginning of the millennium, the martyrs, not some of them only, as the bishop hints, will be raised in the persons of their legitimate successors in faith and practice, and their faith and practice will constitute the happy state of the world for a thousand years. So, when that period shall have expired, Satan, being loosed out of his prison, chapter 20, verse 8, will deceive the nations as before, and during the little season of liberty, will succeed in raising from the dead, as it were, a multitude of the same character as those who killed the witnesses, Gog and Magog. This may be called the second resurrection, and there will never be a third of that kind, for the Lord will destroy them forever, chapter 20, verse 9. The character of the witnesses and their unparalleled conflicts with Antichrist sufficiently identified them in the Apocalypse throughout the 1260 years, as also during the thousand years of their reign, and the character of their enemies identifies them in the time of conflict for 1260 years. 
But during the succeeding period of righteousness and of peace, for a thousand years, they will not be permitted to lift up the head. And so soon as they are organized under the conduct of Satan, and like Pharaoh, most confident of victory, victory, Exodus 15, verse 9, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, and they shall not escape. The identity of the two witnesses. The late Reverend Alexander MacLeod, D.D., who had the works of learned predecessors before him, has successfully corrected many of their misinterpretations in his valuable publication entitled Lectures Upon the Principal Prophecies of the Revelation. At that time, when he wrote that work, he possessed several advantages in aid of his own expositions. He had access to the most valuable works which had been issued before that date, 1814. He was then in the vigor of youthful manhood, and he was also comparatively free from the trammels which, in attempts to expand the apocalypse, have cramped the energies of many a well-discipled mind, political particularities. At the time of these profound studies, he occupied a position in the wilderness from which, as a standpoint, like John and Patmos, he could most advantageously survey the passing scenes of providence with the ardor of youthful emotion and with unsullied affection for the divine master. With all these advantages, however, the dispassionate and impartial reviewer may discover in the rapid current of his thoughts that the active powers of the expositor sometimes took precedence of the intellectual. Two special causes may be assigned for this, hereditary, hereditary love of liberty and the actual condition of society at the time. Born in Scotland, the cradle of civil and religious liberty from the days of John Knox, Dr. MacLeod's traditions and mental associations were necessarily imbued with the atmosphere of such surroundings. To such causes may be attributed occasional declamation, extravagant verbosity, and unconscious inconsistencies not well comporting with the solidity and self-possession so desirable on the part of an expositor. Yet even in such outbursts of impassioned eloquence we may sometimes discover noble conceptions commanding our admiration, if not altogether such as secure our approbation. It ought to be considered, moreover, that the lectures came from their author in a turbulent, if not a revolutionary, condition of society. Peninsular Europe was convulsed by the successful military career of that brilliant general, Napoleon, England and the United States were also at war. The independence and even the existence of the young republic were apparently in peril. The lecturer very naturally sympathized with the land of his adoption in which resided his domestic treasures and many of the excellent ones of the earth to whom he was bound by conjugal, paternal, and covenant ties. In a condition of actual warfare, he could not but feel most keenly the constriction of these manifold and endearing bonds, especially when thought to be jeopardized. With these preliminaries, and expressing my obligation to the doctor's labors, to whose system of interpretation, as well as to most of his details, I cheerfully give my approbation in preference to all other expositors whose works it has been in my power to consult. It is proposed briefly to review some of his expositions and sentiments from which I crave liberty to dissent. It is not the interest of any man to be in error. In his interpretation of the seals and trumpets of the apocalypse, Dr. MacLeod 
has unquestionably corrected many misapprehensions of his learned predecessors, especially Bishop Newton and Mr. Faber, and it is perhaps to be regretted that he did not favor the public with his view of the vials also, a work which he seems to have had in contemplation when the lectures were published. The three last-named interpreters did certainly improve upon the exposition of all who went before in this field of investigation, and in most cases of disagreement the doctor excelled in accuracy the other two, as will readily appear on careful examination. In attempting to ascertain the import of the mystic witnesses as of the Antichrist, expositors widely, widely differ. Bishop Newton says positively, the witnesses cannot be any two churches. Mr. Faber is equally peremptory that they must be two churches, and he attempts to sustain his position by many citations of scripture and by much plausible argumentation. The bishop is substantially correct in saying there are a succession of men and a succession of churches. Mr. Faber is also correct in the main when he says the two witnesses signify the spiritual members of the Catholic Church, but his notion of two churches, the Old and New Testament churches, betrays his imperfect conception of the essential unity of the Church of God. Both he and the bishop overlook too often the important fact that civil magistracy is a divine ordinance which, as corrupted, constitutes the first beast of the Apocalypse and the most prominent feature of the great Antichrist. Dr. McLeod's definition or description of the witnesses is as follows. They are a small company of true Christians defending the interest of true religion against all opposition and frequently sealing with their blood the testimony which they hold. Page 314. This description is most definite than either of the two preceding and is therefore worthy of preference Yet the reader will still wish for something more precise and tangible. Since the prophets of the Old and New Testaments reveal the hostility of the devil to Christ, of the devil to Christ and his people, and since both Daniel and John represent this hostility by appropriate and intelligent, intelligible symbols as carried out by corrupting the two great ordinances of church and state, would it not follow that the witnesses are those Christians who, for 1260 years, apply the word of God to these two ordinances, contending for a scriptural magistracy and a gospel ministry, the two sons of oil, and testifying against their counterfeits? Such appears to be the import of those mystical characters of whom we read Zechariah 4.14 and Revelation 11.4. In tracing the witnesses through their eventful history for 1260 years as betrayed in the Apocalypse, and in fixing with precision their continuous identity, I am constrained reluctantly to dissent from the doctor and agree with Faber. Adopting the lay language of Fraser's key, F-R-A-Z-E-R, apostrophe S, Dr. McLeod says, Quote, These witnesses differ as much from their cotemporaries, the 144,000 sealed ones, Revelation 7.4, as Elijah differed from the 7,000 in Israel in his time. End quote. The attempt is made to prove this assertion by the following plausible argument. God is never for a moment without a people upon earth. This is true, and the visible church is an indestructible society. Is this assertion true? 
Is it partially true and partly untrue? True of her existence and moral identity, but not of her visibility as an organized body. For example, where was the visible church while Elijah dealt by the brook Cherith? 1 Kings 17.3 and 19 verse 10. Or while the woman was in the wilderness? Revelation 12.6. It is, is it consistent with propriety to contemplate the woman as literally visible when she is symbolically in the wilderness? This seems to be impossible. I am therefore prepared to give my decided preference to the sentiment of Mr. Faber contained in the following words of his dissertation, quote, The 144,000 here mentioned, Revelation 14.1, are immediate successors of the 144,000 sealed servants of God, chapter 7, verse 4. They are the same in short as the two witnesses. They constitute the persecuted church in the wilderness, end quote. I cannot but think the evidence of identity here irresistible, and in the pithy language of the doctor on another point I say, quote, a man must shut his eyes not to see, end quote, the correctness of Mr. Faber's interpretation of this identity. The doctor's censure of English expositors in one of his notes will too often justly apply to other divines than expounding prophecy, quote, they have greatly diminished the value of their publications by permitting themselves to indulge so much of the spirit of political partiality, end quote. Dr. McLeod and Mr. Faber I consider among the best expositors of the prophecies on which they severally wrote, and therefore their valuable works have been principally contemplated in these animadversions. On material points, they have shed much light where those who preceded them left the reader in darkness or involved him in perplexing labyrinths. Faber preceded MacLeod, and the latter availed himself of all the aid furnished by the former. Yet, till the mystery of God shall be finished, his people will be receiving accessions of light from the sure word of prophecy. Sounding of the Seventh Trumpet at the time when those learned divines wrote, the political agitations in Europe and America, as already noticed, gave a peculiar tincture to their opinions and expositions of the apocalyptic symbols. This state of feeling on the part of these distinguished men and on opposite sides of the Atlantic is very strikingly illustrated in their conflicting interpretations of the third woe, the seventh trumpet. Amidst the conflict of arms and the booming of cannons in both hemispheres, these writers thought the first blast of the seventh trumpet and third woe could be distinctly heard. They differed widely, however, in their interpretations of his import and effects. To Mr. Faber, Napoleon, who was the most conspicuous figure in the passing drama, appeared as a terrific vandal at the head of his legions, threatening to uproot and lay waste the fair fabric of European civilization. To the doctor, on the other hand, Napoleon seemed the possible minister of providence destined to prepare the way of the Lord and to introduce a better, a scriptural civilization. Time has sufficiently demonstrated the fallacy of their respected expositions of the seventh trumpet. It is needless to quote or review their speculation. The principal defect pervading the lectures, and one which most readers will be disposed to view in an opposite light, appears to be a charity too broad, a catholicity too expansive, to be easily reconciled with a consistent position among the mystic witnesses. 
Their author, however, deriving much information from the learned labors of English prelates on prophecy, could not find it in his heart to exclude them from a place in the honorable role of the witnesses. I am unable to recognize any of those who are in organic fellowship with the eldest daughter of Popery as entitled to rank among those who are symbolized as clothed in sackcloth. Though the two positions and fellowships appear to be obviously incompatible and palpably irreconcilable. It is true that there have been and still are in the English establishments divines who are strictly evangelical, but the reigning mediator, mediator views and treats individuals as he views and treats the moral person with which individuals freely choose to associate, and we ought to have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16. Assuming that the third woe trumpet was sounding in his ears, the doctor, transported with the imagery but delightful prospect that the kingdoms of this world were speedily to become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, speaks of France as follows, quote, She has given assistance to the sons of freedom on the plains and along the shores of Colombia until the Republican eagles snatched the oppressed provinces from the paw of the royal lion of England, end quote. We, we may admire the metaphors of the orator while we deplore the political feelings of the divine. It is true, as the orator in calmer moments reflects, quote, the political conduct of professing Christians is generally lamentable, end quote. And alas, this lamentable conduct is usually tolerated and too often exemplified by their spiritual guides. It has been generally so since the days of Jeroboam, who made priests of the lowest of the people, and thereby rendered the ministry the stipend diaries of the state. And as it was then, even so it is now, whether in the kingdom, empires, or republics of the earth, let us with the doctor lament the, the political conduct of Christians in the present age of the world. Allusion has been made already to seeming inconsistencies in the doctor's sentiments, there is truth in the adage, times change and we change with them. And indeed, changes are allowable in matters of a circumstantial nature which do not affect moral principles. Moral principle, however, is in its nature immutable. In the early period of the doctor's public life, he had nobly proved Negro slavery unjustifiable. But this accursed system was, from the first, interwoven with the very framework of that Republican America, which, in his lectures, he takes occasions thus to eulogize, quote, We never formed a street of the mystical Babylon. Let this be the asylum of the oppressed. She, Republican America, has not, either by sea or land, encouraged oppression or despoiled of his goods him, that was at peace with us, end quote. I confess my inability to credit these statements or to reconcile them with the great moral principles which the author justly tells his readers it was the object of the author of the Apocalypse to illustrate before the world. I have thus noticed some of the most important particulars in which I dissent from the interpretations of the doctor and others that the reader may be guided by all accessible waymarks in searching after the mind of God in this mysterious but highly instructive part of his precious word. I can again cordially recommend to his attention the lectures of Dr. McLeod as the best exposition of those parts of the apocalypse of which he treats that have come under my notice. 
in the notes will be found minor points of dissent from the doctor's views and from multiplied aberrations of many others. I have studied great plainness of speech, abstaining from the introduction of many verbal criticisms on the original text and from the use of terms and phrases not familiar to the unlearned reader. Let no sincere Christian be deterred by seeming difficulties from reading the Apocalypse or be dissuaded from searching it by the discrepancies of interpreters, for this is equally true of other scriptures. 2 Peter 3.16 The title of this book. In our authorized version of the Bible, this last book is correctly translated Revelation. It is otherwise designated the Apocalypse by simply anglicizing the Greek title. A distinguished modern divine, Dr. Seiss, S-E-I-S-S, has furnished the public with a novel interpretation of the title, but it is remarkable that he does not propose an interpretation at all. He merely gives what he conceives to be a correct translation. It is this, the book of the unveiling of Jesus Christ. In this singular translation, two things are transparent, affection of scholarship and the cardinal error of millenarianism. Learned men, however, are not devoid of fancy. Of this fact, those who are historically designated millenarians have given many illustrations from the primitive ages down to our own times. The doctor's rendering of the name of this book discloses the predominant idea conceived in his imagination and cherished there that Christ is to appear upon earth in glorified humanity at the beginning of the millennium and that the apocalypse is intended chiefly to apprise the church and the world of this momentous event. The unveiling of Jesus Christ, indeed, why the Lord Jesus Christ was revealed, unveiled to the faith of our first parents and the promise of the woman's seed, as every intelligent Christian knows, Genesis 3.15. We are assured that to him give all the prophets witness, Acts 10.43. Abraham rejoiced to see Christ's day, John 8:56. His advent in the flesh was so well known that Old Testament believers spoke of him familiarly as of him that was to come, Matthew 11:3. Surely he was unveiled to his disciples all the time that he went in and out among them before his death. And after his resurrection, he appeared unto them the third time was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5 and 6. After his ascension, Stephen saw Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Acts 7, 56. How preposterous then, since the whole Bible unveils the Savior to insinuate that the specific object of the apocalypse is to unveil Jesus Christ that Dr. Seiss and those who endorse his mistranslation or as is as it sought to be called his false exposition of the title to this book do totally misapprehend and misinterpret the mind of the Holy Spirit is further evident from the obvious import of the plain words in the first verse this revelation of Jesus Christ God gave unto him Christ did God the Father unveil Christ to Christ himself 
How gross the absurdity. We do not transgress the law of charity in pronouncing as impious such manifest resting of the scriptures. Moreover, the declared object of this book is to show unto God's servants things, not to show Christ, which must shortly come to pass, namely, events of providence, which were then future, the evolution of the purposes of God. It is indeed true that in the sublime scenery presented in vision to John, the Lord Jesus often appears as a very conspicuous object, but he is only one among the multiplicity of other objects, and generally as the principal agent in executing the divine decrees. In this attitude he appears immediately on the opening of the seals of that book, which all sober expositors consider as the symbol of God's purposes, especially of those unveiled in this prophetic book when in the sixth chapter the four animals say in succession, Come and see, is Jesus Christ the only object to be seen, the exclusive object unveiled, or even always the primary object? By no means. Thus it is evident that at the very beginning of his career as an expositor of this sacred book, Dr. Seiss gives loose reins to his fancy, and then it is not difficult to foresee through what mazes of error the credulous reader will be conducted who in his simplicity follows such a reckless guide. The hallucinations of millenarians of old and of late have greatly discouraged the disciples of Christ and seriously hindered them in obeying his commands. Search the scriptures, especially this precious book. Their unscriptural error, which some might call an anti-scriptural heresy of the premillennial corporal appearance of our Savior, with its carnal concomitants has been a temptation to not a few to look upon this part of the Bible as wholly unintelligible, contrary to its very name, Revelation. The heredity and inveterate misconceptions by millenarians of the nature of the thousand-year reign of the saints bears a striking analogy to that of the Jews concerning the kingdom of their Messiah and suggests a remark by that prince of divines among English dissenters, Dr. Owen, in his exposition of the epistle to the Hebrews. He says truly, quote, There are precious, useful, significant truths in the scripture, so disposed of, so laid up, as that if we accomplish not a diligent search, we shall never set eye on them. The common course of reading the scriptures, nor the command, common help of expositors, who for the most part go in the same track and scarce venture one step beyond those who have gone before them, will not suffice if we intend a discovery of these hid treasures. End quote. And again he says, quote, How hard it is to dispossess the minds of men of inveterate persuasions in religion. End quote. This ends the reading of Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. 
If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, Notes on the Apocalypse by David Steele, is also available from Stillwater's Revival Books in softcover format at a discount in our A to Z author listing. And please, don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation and Puritan Bookshelf CD sets if you visit our website at swrb.com, as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed book.